Good morning. We find our seats. Merry Christmas. Yeah, thanks. If you would turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 25. Again, verse 25, if you would uh, read along with me. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, just pray, Lord, that you are with us this morning as we go through this text, Lord, the song of praise and worship, Lord, about your Son, the comforter of Israel, Lord, the salvation, Lord, promised throughout all of the Old Testament that was born, Lord, in a manger, in a stable, God, I pray as we approach Christmas this week, Lord, with all the busyness that distracts us, Lord, and the presents, the family, the Christmas parties, Lord, that we remember why the world celebrates, Lord, because your son was born. He came, Lord, as a baby who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, Lord, for our sins, was raised on the third day, and sits next to you, Lord, at your right hand interceding for us, those that are a part of your family, those that have put their faith and trust in in your son, Lord. I pray this morning, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know your son, anyone that hasn't truly put their faith in him, that hasn't made him the Lord of their lives, that that doesn't have their hope in him, Lord, I pray that they examine their hearts this morning as we reflect on the consolation of Israel, Lord, on the comforter, God, be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Last week, of course, we were in Exodus, and we were looking at one of the great songs of Scripture. In fact, it's pretty amazing to me just how many songs there are in Scripture. I mean, we have, of course, the whole collection of songs and prayers and hymns and uh, and the book of Psalms, but there are all types of songs just throughout, scattered throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And if you go through scripture, it's pretty amazing all the different songs you see. And last week we went over the song of Moses, written by Moses, sung by the Israelites, and this is in Exodus 15, as they come came out on the other side of the Red Sea, freed from slavery from Egypt, redeemed, therefore out of their love, and as we have seen the fear of the Lord, they sing. 
Right? In fact, as you go through the text, it seems like the men saying to the women and the women saying back to the men, back and forth in joy and worship and praise to this great God that just revealed himself to the Israelites. Last week, we saw that the fear of the Lord really produces song. And I ended with a quote that I just want to read one more time by Michael Reeves. Talking about the fear of the Lord, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the reason Christianity is the most song-filled of all religions. It's the reason why Christians are always looking to make melody about their faith. Christians instinctively want to sing to express the affections behind their words of praise, knowing that words spoken flatly will not do in worship of this God. And this is one of the reasons we sing so much during this time of year. The birth of Christ this morning, singing hymns that have been sung by the church for hundreds of years, and we come together and sing. In fact, if you look at the birth narrative, there's all types of different songs and singing that is happening. Today, I want to look at another great song of scripture surrounding, again, the birth of Jesus. And this is the song of Simeon. If you look at verse 25, we'll, we'll walk through this passage. It says this, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now we don't know a whole lot about Simeon. In fact, for many of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard of this man, Simeon. We know a couple things. First of all, he was righteous and devout. But secondly, and, and, and probably more importantly, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's another way of saying he was waiting for the Messiah. But that's kind of a weird phrase, the consolation of Israel. In fact, when I hear consolation, and I've talked to a few people about this, the thing that pops in my mind, and it was true for them too, is this idea of a consolation prize, right? A prize for everyone that has lost, in other words. <laughs> and so it's not really a positive thing in my mind when I hear the word cons- consolation. So when I first studied this passage a few years ago, I had to look up that word, consolation. What's that mean? Well, it's the act of consoling or the state of being consoled or comforted. That's the definition of consolation. Another definition is the the comfort received by a person or a thing after a loss or disappointment. That's why a consolation prize, after you lose, it's to console you uh, for the loss, right? Another definition, and I think this definition really fits how the word's being used in Luke here, in Luke chapter 2, it's a person or a thing providing comfort to a person who has suffered. And again, that's a good understanding, I believe, of the consolation of Israel. The Greek word is paraklesin. Paraklesin, this word is used 29 times in the New Testament. Eight times it's in, in, interpreted encouragement, which is a good interpretation. And 12 times it's interpreted comfort. Therefore, the consolation of Israel could be translated, and maybe some of your translations actually translate it this way, the comfort of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the comfort or the comforter, the consolation of Israel, the Messiah that was promised. In this word, paraklesin, the consolation or comfort, 
It's actually an Old Testament word and idea. It's used a lot in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, of course, was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek. And this translation around the time of Jesus, or before the time of Jesus, was called the Septuagint. It's an important translation because most of the New Testament is very clear. Most of the New Testament authors actually quote from the Septuagint. So it's a very important translation, and it's a Greek translation. And in Isaiah, the word paraklesin, or comfort, is used 25 times, and it's mostly used in the chapters between 40 and 66. 40 and 66. Therefore, most scholars believe that this phrase the consolation or the comforter of Israel comes from this portion of scripture. That's what Simeon was referring to when he said he was waiting for the comforter or the comfort of Israel. Especially the very beginning, Isaiah 40, verse 1, which says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let me ask a question. Does that sound familiar? Comfort, comfort my people. It may sound familiar because Jim just wrote it or read it this morning to start our worship service. But if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, it's actually the very first words that are sung in that great uh, um, whole collection of songs. Comfort, comfort my people. Again, we see this production of song that comes out uh, of the the birth narrative of Christ. Comfort, comfort my people. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah 40, because I want to really get the context of what Simeon was singing about when he wrote this song. As you're turning there, let me just give you the context of this passage. It's pretty simple. The context is just judgment. In fact, the first part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, is just mostly judgment. You read through the passage, or this this whole portion of scripture, and it opens with with Isaiah writing about this lawsuit that, that God has against Israel, because they have broken the covenant. Israel has sinned, they have been unfaithful to God, therefore judgment is coming. It's the whole first part of Isaiah, 40 chapters worth, just about. And not just Israel, but judgment is coming to the nations, to the whole world, for their sin against this great God. But then we get to Isaiah 40, and the, and the tone just changes in the book of Isaiah. It starts with these beautiful words. Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Again, Isaiah 1 through 39 is, is mostly judgment. Judgment is coming. Then you get to Isaiah 40, and then you get to verse 1, and, and God tells Isaiah, comfort my people. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. The, the distress, the sorrow, the pain, the grief that comes from war is over. Her warfare is ended. Why? Verse 2, that her iniquity is pardoned. It's clear, and God makes it very clear, speaking through Isaiah in chapters 1 through 39, that the war and destruction 
right, the pain and, and suffering that the war and destruction that is happening on Israel was brought about because of Israel's sin. It was judgment. Therefore, it wasn't these other nations that were warring against Israel, right? It wasn't even war itself that was causing the pain and destruction. It was sin. Sin was the problem. But one day, there's this promise that her iniquity is pardoned. In other words, soon, Israel's sin will be forgiven. And this forgiveness will bring peace. This forgiveness will bring comfort. Again, verse 2 says this, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. In other words, judgment is over. So much so, it's like she has received, Israel has received double for all of her sins. This is hyperbolic language. It's a hyperbole. It just means that that Israel's sins is completely and totally paid for. It's like, almost like that, that it's been paid for twice. Now, there's a mystery here. Because scripture is also very clear from Genesis all the way through that the penalty of sin is death. And when, when scripture talks about the penalty of sin being death, it's talking about eternal death. It's eternal death, eternity in hell, because sin has an eternal debt surrounded to it. The wages of sin is an eternal debt. There's a mystery here, because how could such a high price be paid for? And this really doesn't get answered in the book of Isaiah until we get to Isaiah chapter 53, which gets answered very clearly in that passage. But the point here in Isaiah 40 is that salvation is coming. Forgiveness is coming. And the salvation and forgiveness will bring comfort and peace to Israel. This is what Simeon was waiting for. The consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. Turn back to Luke chapter 2 verse 25. This is the context of what Simeon is singing about. Verse 25 again says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Again, waiting for the comfort, the comfort that's promised in Isaiah 40. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26 says this, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Somehow, we don't know exactly how, but somehow through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it came in and let Simeon know that before he dies, he would see the Messiah, right? The Lord's Christ. And Christ is a Greek word for Messiah. Verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him, in his arms and blessed God and said, Now. Verse 29, Lord, now. The first word that's actually there 
in, in Greek is now. The word Lord is found in Greek at the very end of verse 29. The Greek word order is just different than English word order, and, and sometimes we have to change it to put it into English to make sense in English. But the Greek word kyrios is actually the end of the verse. The very first word Simeon say, says when he picks up the Christ Jesus in his arms is the word now. Now, in Greek, it's nun. In Latin, it's nuk. Nunc. Therefore, in the history of the church, the psalm by Simeon is called the nunc um, dimitis, which means in Latin, now let depart. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and said, now. In other words, the waiting is over. The constellation of Israel is here now. Simeon knew his Old Testament well. He knew that the whole Old Testament was really a story, a story about a nation, a story about a nation waiting. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for comfort, waiting for peace, waiting for salvation and forgiveness. This waiting starts all the way from the beginning of the Old Testament as Ross prayed this morning, really starts in Genesis 3 when Eve was tempted by the serpent, which is the devil, and she took the fruit and ate and gave to her husband, right? And Adam, he ate and sinned and rebelled against God. From this point on, from Genesis 3 on, mankind is at war. Mankind is at war. War with each other. Just look at the history of mankind. In fact, you just think about Adam and Eve, right? As soon as they they sin, as soon as they eat, what do they do? They blame each other. There's war within marriage. They have kids. They're probably twins. And what happens? One kills the other. It's war within family. You just look at the history of mankind, and, and it's nothing but war, death, murder, and violence. Warfare with each other, but not just warfare with each other, warfare with God. Romans 5.10 makes it very clear that we were born enemies of God. Satan was our prince. We were part of his kingdom, which is at war with God. Just like Egypt was at war with Yahweh, we were born into that. We are at war with God. We are at war with each other. We're at war with God. And not just that, we had warfare within our own souls. James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? From Genesis 3 on, there is no peace, no comfort. There's only a fallen world. There's only war. Both Adam and Eve sinned, and what followed was shame, guilt, regret, fear, pain, sorrow, and eventually death. But thankfully, right from the beginning, just think about that. Right from the beginning, God proves to be a merciful God. And in his mercy, he promises Eve a future hope, a future comfort, a future peace. 
And this promise is found in Genesis 3.15, which is really the first glimpse of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the curse on Satan. And this is what God says to Satan. I'll put enmity between you, that's a serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring or her seed. He, again, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head. And I like the NIV, it says, crush your head. And you shall bruise or strike his heel. It's this picture, and we've talked about this verse a lot. It's this picture of a man crushing the head of a snake. This is hope. Genesis 3.15, there's this hope in this coming seed that will redeem Eve. That will redeem mankind. That will redeem creation. That will reverse the curse that was brought in by sin. By crushing the serpent's head, reversing the effects of sin in this world. And, and from this point on, Genesis chapter 3, from this point on in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is waiting. The people of God are waiting. Waiting for the coming seed. Waiting for the coming hope. Waiting for the coming comfort that is promised. We see this waiting again in the very next chapter. Chapter 4 in Genesis is all about Adam and Eve's offspring. In fact, we've gone through Genesis enough that, that we should all understand that Genesis is really just one big genealogy. We've talked about this. Following the seed, the offspring of Eve, following the seed of the woman. In fact, the genealogies of Scripture really just kind of act like a map, pointing us to, to hope, right? this coming seed. And God's people waiting. You can follow the genealogy all the way to Abraham. Of course, he has a son, Isaac. He has a son, Jacob. He has 12 sons, and that's where we are. Exodus, become a great nation. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says, the people of Israel were fruitful and exceedingly um, uh, increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is Exodus, the family of 12, 12 boys becomes a great nation. But we've been in Exodus long enough to realize there's still no peace. There's still no comfort. Because as we know, in Exodus, Israel was a slave nation. There was a lot of them, but they were slaves to Egypt. They had no land. They had no temple. They had no king. They had no comfort. Therefore, God raises up Moses to free his people right, and promises this nation a, a promised land, a land flowing with, with milk and honey, a promised land, really a new Eden, as we've been talking about, where God, once again, just like the garden, will dwell with man on earth. Israel will be a type of a, a new Adam in the promised land, a new Eden, a, a new garden. as we learn, and as we will learn, just like Adam and Eve, Israel fails. I mean, think of the history of Israel. Before they even get to the promised land, this land promised to them, this new, new garden where they're just like Adam and Eve had comfort and peace in the garden, dwelling with God. Before they even get there, 
They worship a false god, a golden calf. In fact, we'll see that they start worshiping this golden calf, and, and they say to this golden calf that they have made, you're the one that freed us from Egypt. And this is, this is when they get the covenant with God. I've heard a couple of theologians say it's almost like if you were married, the wife having an affair the night of the wedding. That's what happened. Israel sins. It doesn't stop there. Even when they get into the promised land, what do they do? They're unfaithful. They sin over and over and over again which brings war and destruction. In fact, that's what the book of Judges is all about. I don't know how many times I've talked to people that go, what? I don't get the book of Judges. <laughs> it's all about Israel's unfaithfulness and the destruction that causes. And you get to the end of the book of Judges, and, and Israel's sin is so bad that they don't look any different than Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis and go to the end of the book of Judges, they just parallel each other. The point is that Israel was just so evil that they looked just as evil as all the evil nations of the world. So Israel cries out to God at the end of the book of Judges saying, if we, if we only had a king like the other nations, then we will have peace. Then we will have comfort. So God gives them a king like the other nations, Saul. A horrible king. And there was no comfort. But then God, again, out of his mercy, and if you, if you can't see God's mercy and love and gentleness in the Old Testament, then you need to read it again. God, out of his mercy, gives them a king unlike the other nations. A king after God's own heart, a man from the genealogies found in Genesis, right from the line of Judah, King David. But even King David is a sinner. He sins, he's an adulterer, a murderer, and David's life ends with no comfort. But instead of comfort, we get conflict and death and pain because of sin. But again, in God's mercy, God promises a seed that would come from David a future king, a sinless king who will bring peace and comfort. In fact, he will bring an everlasting kingdom. He will come from David's line, David's family, David's offspring. It's a future seed, a a son of David, as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In other words, we see that there's still hope for this peace and comfort. And Israel is still waiting. A son of David is coming. And we start following the genealogy of David. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon has a son. His son has a son. His son has a son. And they're all kings. This is a book of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They're books saying there's still hope. But listen, I just want you to think. We learn in these books that most of the kings are evil. They lead both Israel and Judah to rebel against God to sin. Therefore, just like Adam and Eve, God kicks them out of the promised land. Right? God kicks them out of this, this new Eden, this new garden. 
and they become captives of Babylon. They're exiled. They're out of, out of the promised land. And everything seems hopeless. Like, I mean, you just think about the Old Testament. There's all this hope and then disappointment, hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment. And you get to the end of, of the, the Old Testament and, and Israel is exiled. Israel has no land, no king, right? no kingdom. The temple is destroyed. Think about this. They become just slaves in a foreign country. Just like the book of Exodus. Over a thousand years later, and Israel's back right where they started as a lowly slave nation. But listen, there's hope. This is all the context of Isaiah 40. This is when Isaiah 40 was meant to be delivered to Israel. It's hope. Israel is not lost. There is still hope. God, in fact, commands Isaiah to comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and and cry to her that her warfare is ended. All the warfare, all the murder, all the pain, all the suffering that we see in the Old Testament, her warfare is ended because her iniquity is pardoned. That's such an important part. Comfort is coming because salvation is coming. The pardoning of sin is coming. This is why Simeon was so excited. He was waiting. He was told that, that he would not depart. We don't know when he was told this, but he was told he, he, he would not depart this life before seeing the Christ Messiah, this hope, the consolation of Israel, this coming seed, the comforter of Israel, salvation. But he understood his Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was waiting. And listen, that day in the temple, Simeon took him took him Jesus. Let me just stop. Just think about that. Every Christmas I come to this passage and this one phrase just blows my mind. Took him up in his arms. This is the creator of the universe. This is the great I am, the great Yahweh of Exodus. This is who is in the burning bush. This is who's, who split the Red Sea. Who spoke everything into existence. And Simeon picked him up in his arms. And he blessed God and said, Now. Now. The waiting is over. Now, salvation is here. Now, the Old Testament is fulfilled. I mean, thousands and thousands of years, thousands of prophecy. The waiting is over. Now, right? The seed of the woman is here. The son of David is here. The consolation of Israel is here. The Messiah is here. And Simeon says, now. In fact, again, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 28. He, the Simeon, took, took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. For Simeon, there is finally peace because the Messiah is here. Let me just make this extremely personal. I, you know, the, I know as we get close to Christmas and, and Easter and these holidays, there are many of you that, that come to church that maybe come to church a couple times a year. There's many of you that come to church every Sunday or often, and you're still not in right standing with the Lord. So let me ask this question and make this extremely personal. Are you looking for peace this morning? Are you looking for comfort this morning? Look at what Simeon says. The waiting is over. The consolation of Israel is here. According to your word, verse 30, he says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Peace and comfort is here, in other words, as he's looking at this baby. Because salvation is here. My eyes have seen your salvation. I mean, he just calls Jesus salvation. Again, let me ask this question. You don't, don't raise your hand. Answer this in your heart. How many of you this morning have absolutely no peace? No comfort? In your soul, you have distress, sorrow, guilt, shame, regret, conflict, fear, stress, anxiety. You know, the Bible is extremely clear why that is. It's because of sin. Maybe it's just sin of a, uh, the effects of sin on a fallen world, right? We live in a fallen world because of sin, which brings death. Maybe you've lost someone that you've loved recently. Decay. Why our bodies are falling apart because of sin. Maybe you're struggling with some kind of health issue. Maybe you don't have peace and comfort because of sins of others that are around you. Others that have sinned against you. There's conflict within family, and this time of year just brings that out so much more. Hurts. You know, maybe it's the, the pressure that we're feeling from an evil culture that, that, that we have felt so much in the last few years here that just brings no peace or comfort. But I want to be clear more than anything, and I know this is true because Jesus was at perfect peace. In fact, he was in a storm of a boat and he just was asleep and they had to like wake him up. Like, we're all going to die. It's like, why are you worrying? I created oceans. Like, <laughs> be still, right? Jesus was at perfect peace. You know what he had? He had others sinning against him. Or he had conflict. In fact, all the disciples left him. One of his closest friends completely betrayed him to the point of death. Yet he has peace. The reason we don't have peace is not because of outside circumstances. The reason we don't have peace, the reason we don't have comforted peace is because of the sin within our heart. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear 
besides Jesus, we are all sinners. We all deserve God's wrath, not his mercy, not his peace, not his comfort. But here's the good news. God sent his son, Jesus, the consolation of Israel, to to pay the price of sin for us so that our iniquity, Isaiah 41, verse 2, our iniquity, our sins may be pardoned. I just want to be as clear as I can be on this. The wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. And we're talking about the second death here, not just dying. We all will die, but the second death is eternal wrath in hell. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, Jesus died on the cross to save us. Jesus took our place. He paid the price. He took our place on the cross so that our sins may be pardoned. For all those who believe, who truly trust God with their life, who truly trust his son, are willing to follow him. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you want comfort this morning? I'm not talking about worldly comforts. I'm talking about true everlasting comfort. I'm talking about deep comfort within your soul, no matter what the circumstances are in this life knowing that you're in right relationship with God, knowing that you have a glorious future with this great God in eternity. If you want that comfort, confess your sins to God. Believe and trust in his son. Put your faith in the consolation of Israel, the comforter of Israel. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins. Whoever believes in him will find that comfort. This is the context of the song. We haven't gotten the song yet, so. Let's look at the song. We'll end here. And I'll be real quick. And my Christmas gift to you guys is we'll get out early. So we get ready to celebrate Christmas this this week. I just want to look at the three truths that are found within this song. The first one is this. There is peace offered in Jesus for the individual. For you individually. Look at verse 29. It says this. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is that salvation. That's who Simeon is looking at when he says this. For my eyes have seen your salvation. As I've just mentioned, all you have to do is trust in him, put your faith in him. No work will get you to salvation. No work will get you closer to God. Our only way to God is through Jesus and trusting in him for the individual. The second truth is this, and this second truth is for us as a church. You are saved. You're a part of Country Oaks. This is my challenge to you, and it's found in the second truth. Jesus is the light to the nations, not just Israel. Again, this is a truth for our church. Look at verse 30. It says this. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, plural, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You know, I'm assuming Simeon just understood his Old Testament extremely well. Because this is amazing. Just unlike the disciples, we learn this in the gospel, especially in the book of Acts. Unlike most, if not all the Pharisees, I should say, unlike the scribes and the religious leaders, I would say this too. Unlike most Christians today, Simeon knew his Old Testament. He knew that the Messiah would be a light, not just to Israel, not just to the culture that, that we belong to, but to all peoples, all nations. Listen, our calling is very clear in the Great Commission is to take the gospel as a church, to take the gospel and proclaim it to the nations. Meaning here in Tehachapi, for sure. But also cross-cultural boundaries to nations, to peoples that don't have the gospel. And Simeon gets it. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. The third truth that we see in this song is that the glory comes from Israel. And the gospel is for the nations, but the glory comes from Israel. And we see this in verse 32. It says, and for the glory to your people, Israel. And this is the same thing Jesus made very clear to the women at the well in John 4. Salvation is from the Jews. God picked Israel. Why? I have no idea. Just read the Old Testament. It's confusing, right? Why Israel? In fact, God tells us why in Deuteronomy. It has nothing to do with Israel. It's because God is gracious and loving, and he picked Israel. He picked Israel and said, salvation is going to come from you. A seed is coming from the line of Abraham, from the line of Isaac, from the line of Jacob, from the line of Judah, from the line of Boaz and Ruth, from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. Right? Israel, in the whole Old Testament, is waiting for this comforter, right? waiting for the consolation of Israel. And one night, over 2,000 years ago, in Bethlehem, in a stable, in a manger of all places, the waiting was over. Salvation was here. The Messiah was born, and his name was Jesus. I hope you have a Merry Christmas this week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just amazed, Lord, when I look through your word, through the meta-narrative, through the, the big story, the big picture of your word, just how perfectly interconnected all these stories are and how they all point to your son. Lord, I'm amazed that how we, how we see man fell over and over and over and over again throughout all of scripture. You are still faithful. You are still merciful. You are still gracious. You send your son to pay the way that, that we may come to you and find that peace and comfort that only you can provide, Lord. 
God, I know that many of us, Lord, in this world seek comfort and peace in the things of this world and only find disappointment, Lord. God, I pray that if there's anyone that's listening in this room or even online, Lord, that that hasn't truly put their faith in you, that hasn't truly sought after you with all of their heart, Lord, I pray that they understand right now, Lord, that, that that's the only path to comfort and peace. The only path to salvation is through your son. Got to pray as we get closer to Christmas that we understand the true meaning, the true reason that we celebrate. We get together as families, that we eat food, that we open up presents, Lord. And I pray that it's all an act of worship of you and what you have done through your son, through the cross, through the resurrection. God, I pray also, Lord, as a church, we understand that this message, our, our calling is to take this message outside of these four walls, Lord, to our community and beyond. Lord, give us a conviction in that. In your son's name, amen.